55. Taking a little break from the Gospel of Mark. We've kind of been in that a lot for about a year now and uh, the last couple of weeks. Well, last week and and this week specifically, we're going to be taking a a little step aside and then we're going to begin a little series that's going to bring us right up until October 23rd when our evangelist comes. Um, Just a series on leadership, leadership within the home and, and submission within the home. What does the Bible say about that? What's the Bible say about working with your boss, um, leadership in your church, and things like that. I kind of mentioned that a a week or so ago. We would be doing something like that, and we're just going to kick that off next week. So a short series. Um, It will not be a year-long excursion into another book. Uh, We'll we'll get back into Mark when that's over, and that'll take us up to around Christmas time, and we'll just keep rolling, but we'll we'll try and be uh, as led by the Spirit in that as we can be. But if you're in your Bible at uh, Isaiah 55, you can go ahead and follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the CSB translation this morning. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David, since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. So you will summon a nation you do not know. And nations who do not know you will run to you. For the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth... So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. I'm going to pray again real quick. Father, I just pray this morning, let it be your words, not mine. For your glory, honor you to worship you, pray you speak to us through this today, through your word. We know it does not return void. Say this again in Jesus' name. Many of you who've heard me preach, you've heard me say several times, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. I say it all the time. And if there's nothing else about God that I'm confident in, it is his faithfulness. I'm not always faithful but I know that he is. And if there's one point I could drive home today, if there's one thing I hope you take with you, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, God is faithful to the repentant heart. I'll say it again. God is faithful to the repentant heart. We see this throughout this entire chapter. Isaiah 55 is, in a sense, it's, it's like a bookend to a trilogy. That begins back in chapter 53, the suffering servant of Isaiah. And actually, if you've studied that, you know that actually that begins even a little bit before chapter 53. That suffering servant that we know to be Jesus Christ. It describes his beatings at the hand of, or the behest of Pontius Pilate. It describes his crucifixion, but it also brings to light his resurrection. And then we get into Isaiah 54, and it's this beautiful chapter that describes God's relationship with his people, with this promise of eternal peace to those who will submit to him, who will live their lives for him. And then we have our text today, and it is an invitation of compassion. In fact, that's the title of today's message, an invitation of compassion. And it's an invitation that goes out to everyone, 
to everybody who will listen, that they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, that they might take part in His glorious plans for eternity, that they may become part of His family, that they are grafted into His family, that they become part of His chosen people. But within this message, within this text, there's also this reminder that God does not leave us as we are, but He makes us better. He cleanses us. He frees us from the bondages of sin. We have to repent. We must repent. We leave the old life behind. That old man or old woman we once were must fade, and the new creation must spring forward. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, we must be born again. The Hebrew word for repentance is the word shuv. We see it come up in verses like Joel 2.13. Some of you have heard me talk about this word before. Joel 2.13 says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return, shuv, to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. That word return, shuv, it means turn from the way you're going and return to His way. Get in alignment with His way. Follow His directions, His guiding. Turn to the right path or the better path. In the Greek, the word for repentance is the word metanoia. We see it in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Metanoia is slightly different from shuv, in that not just the fact that it's Greek, but it means changing our mind in a way that changes our complete being. Our whole self must change. And when we are faithful to repent, God is faithful to forgive. When we submit our lives to Him, His ability to love us, to show mercy to us, to show grace to us, to ultimately forgive us, is so much more and so much greater than anything we could ever wrap our minds around. He calls us to Himself. He calls us to repent. And in Isaiah 55, he does it in the most loving, most compassionate way imaginable. But we must hear and heed that invitation. We go back to verse 1, Isaiah 55, 1. It reads, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. The word everyone here, it's actually a very small word in Hebrew. It's the word kol. Not Cole Wiltsy, okay? K-O-L is how we would probably spell it. Cole or call. And it literally means everyone. Everybody is welcome. Everyone is called. The chapter is written in light of the crucifixion, like I said, of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And it outlines all of his passion, all of his sacrifice. And in light of that, Isaiah says, Everybody come! Everyone who is thirsty, everyone gets thirsty. Babies get thirsty. The elderly get thirsty. Everyone gets thirsty. So everyone come. Everyone come to the servant. The work of redemption he's done, he's done for all. And the benefits of his glorious kingdom are for all, provided, provided they are willing to come to him. Christ came and died for everyone. He died for all. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned away to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all. And therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. That statement, all have died, it's that old self, that old person we were before Christ, it must no longer exist if we are truly in Christ. Romans 8 testifies to this as Paul writes again, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. 
He'll come to the waters. If you're tired of the old life, if you're sick of who you are, how you are, what you are, how you've been, how you've lived, if you're sick of the, the struggle, the wrestle continually with sin, today is the day to come to the one who can satisfy your soul. Jesus himself appeals to this in John 7. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's referencing this chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah says something too, at first glance, we might look at it and go, that's kind of contradictory. He says, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Well, we think about that. How am I going to buy anything? I'm broke, right? Ever been there? You go to the bank or or you go to a store and you... You swipe your card and uh -uh, and you swipe your card again uh -uh, and you check your balance on your phone. 33 cents is three cents more than I thought I would need to buy this. But what's 30 cents? That's a bad analogy. I need to work on that. Thing is, he tells us how that works. It's free. It's without price. It's free to those who would receive it anyway. How many of you know Nothing in life is free. It costs somebody something. We've already mentioned who paid it, the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed, Isaiah 53.5. He pays the price so that we might receive it. The servant we call Jesus. Beaten, nailed to a cross, a Roman spear piercing through his side and into his heart. He took our transgressions. He paid for our iniquities. He paid for our sins upon himself, upon his death. He paid the price so that we freely can receive God's mercy, God's grace for free, that we may eat. And that the whole idea of milk and wine, by the way, these are symbols of abundant satisfaction. In Joel 3.18, it says, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam, sorry, stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. It's free. It's abundance. In Christ, we have that. In that He is our treasure. He is our source of wealth and satisfaction because of His beauty, His holiness the satisfaction we have in His Holy Spirit, the completeness we find in Him. It's not something you can just throw a roll of 20s on a table and walk away owning. This is something that He paid for, something priceless, but He pays the price so that we just have to receive it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's a gift. Gifts have to be received. But we read on in verse 2. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? That's, that's a, another way to say that. You ever buy something and afterwards you look at it and you go, why did I get this? Buyer's remorse. That's what we call it. Really only exists in countries where people have money. <laughs> but you ever go to a restaurant and you buy something because it looks really good on the menu and you go, you go, man, that looks so good. And you get it, it comes to the table and you look at it. And by the time you look up, the waitress is gone and you're not going to see her again until she brings you the check. And you're sitting here thinking, why on earth did I get this? This isn't going to satisfy my hunger. My, I took my daughters to Red Lobster the other night. I made a deal with them. If they read 20 books over the summer, we'd have a nice dinner out. Well, Red Lobster's nice for us. And so we went, and I ordered the fish and chips. And I had in my mind these two big cod fillets, a big side of fries. I even ordered a, a side of, of uh, popcorn shrimp. I was so excited. And when it came to the table, I looked down, and this one piece of cod that was kind of twisted upon itself and what would have equaled about a half of a McDonald's medium fry sitting next to it, and my popcorn shrimp just soaking with grease, and I looked at it, 
and thought of this sermon. I thought of this message. I thought, this is the type of thing we buy that doesn't satisfy. This is a good example of this. And by the way, it didn't. It was, it was okay. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever experienced that, you understand what Isaiah is saying here. It's kind of similar to when the Proverbs writes about bread of deceit. Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Now you might hear that and say, Well, Pastor Jeff, that says bread gained by deceit. Isaiah is talking about spending money on that which is not bread. And that's absolutely true, but your sins are buying you bread. In a sense, they are trying to satisfy a want, a hunger that's within you that only God can truly satisfy. Only the Holy Spirit can truly fill that what Augustine called God-shaped vacuum within your heart. Trying to satisfy some idol in your life, the God of self, the God of pleasing others, whatever it may be, is rebellion against God. And that bread only becomes a mouthful of gravel when it's all said and done. Most certainly is not the bread of life. Jesus said that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Whoever believes in him shall never thirst. That kind of sounds like Isaiah 55. We listen diligently to him. We eat what is good. This is a callback to the first chapter of Isaiah when he says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Well, how can a person truly be obedient? How can we trust and obey, as we sang about this morning, by being willing to listen to his word and follow him and live a repentant life? Isaiah goes on, he says, pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithfulness, I'm sorry, the faithful kindnesses of David. So come to him and listen. Why? So that our soul may live. So that we experience true life. The invitation is, again, that we come to him, that those who hear this invitation heed this invitation, then they come to him. That's all they need to do. That's all we need to do. The world is full of self-proclaiming believers, people who say they know what life in Christ is or what life in Christ is like, but you never see love in their life or joy or kindness or patience or goodness or faithfulness. They have no gentleness and they absolutely lack self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit, evidence of Christ touching someone's life, being the center of their life. They'll swear they believe. And the difference between such a person and a demon, James tells us, at least the demons know enough to shudder. If your belief in God does not change you, if your belief in God does not shake you, perhaps it's not a belief worth holding on to. Romans 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The word Paul uses for heart is the Greek word cardia here. And it means it's the center of a person's thoughts. From that point, when the belief changes the heart, it changes their thoughts, it changes their motives, it changes their actions, their conscience. It's the very center of their being. They can't help but believe. They are so convinced of its truth. They're much like the, those who Paul was writing to who would lay down their lives for this truth. You want life? Believe with all you are in Christ. That's the most important command in the Bible, by the way. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love Him with all you are. So many people do not enjoy their Christianity because it's not touched the core of who they are. Because Christ has not touched the core of who they are. Isaiah goes on and he says, God will make a covenant. And it's the same covenant he made with David. The promise of the Davidic covenant is extended to all who come to God through Christ. See, the problem is David's descendants broke that covenant. They were in rebellion. When we get to Jeremiah twenty-two thirty, it says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's King Jehoiakim, by the way. If you look in the genealogies of Matthew, which we, we kind of touched on last week, fascinating fact about the genealogy of Matthew. It's believed to be the, the line of Joseph. 
whereas Luke has the line of Mary. Mary's genealogy in Luke doesn't mention Jehoiakim, but yet it shows that Jesus is a descendant of David. Why does the Bible do this? Why, why do we study the genealogies? They're so boring, right? Well, here's the thing. The curse would pass from Jehoiakim on down to Jesus if Joseph were his father. But God circumvents that. And he also has Jesus being of the house of David through Mary. And so Jesus, not being Joseph's biological son, is not tied to that curse. And through the new David, through Jesus, we all are offered this covenant by God. Ten chapters later, God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That's Jeremiah 32, 40. How can he do that? Because he knows his plan in that genealogy. Ezekiel speaks of it too. He says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. She'll be an everlasting covenant with them. I'll set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Israel breaks their covenant time and time and time again with God. So a new covenant's needed. A new David must rise up. These are fulfilled in Christ and in his church. Verse 4 goes on. It says, since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And we may read that and we may think that he's referring to David, but he's referring to the new one. He's referring to Christ, the one who was yet to come of the house of David. The apostles knew this. In Acts 13, this is something they preach. Paul and Barnabas, they go to speak. And Paul says, As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way. I'll give you a holy and sure blessings of David. He's paraphrasing Isaiah 55. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, I'll not let, I'll not let your holy one see corruption. It's interesting, too, because Isaiah uses the word witness which is actually the Hebrew word ayed. And and in Hebrew, it just means somebody who saw something and they speak about it, they talk about it. But when we get to the New Testament, they don't use a word like that for witness. They use the Greek word martis, where we get the word martyr. Someone who believes it, someone who's witnessed it, someone who's experienced a life-changing event, and they are willing to lay down their lives for the truth of it. Why Jesus is called our Faithful witness. More literal way is he's our faithful martyr. Romans, oh, sorry, Revelation 1 5. And in a way, it, it rewords Isaiah 55 in its entirety. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Faithful witness, leader, and commander. Why is Christ entitled to titles like that? Why does he? Given those roles, why is he given those positions? Because of his love for us and the fact he freed us from our sins by his blood on the cross. Isaiah goes on, he says, Though you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you knew. Words are hard today, I'm sorry. I've had coffee, it's somewhere. I'm going to start over on that. Isaiah 55.5, So you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you, for the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. And before we dig, or dig deeper into that, we have to understand the word you, back in verse 3, is plural. He's speaking to all who would, who would come, all who would listen, all who would bend their ear and, and incline their ear. But here, the word you is singular. It's meant for the servant. It's meant for Christ. He will call. He will draw the whole world. He will draw people, not everybody, but people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe to himself through his suffering. That's what Isaiah makes clear a few chapters back in Isaiah 52. And he says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ says, no one can come to me, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We have to ask, how does the Father draw us? How does he tug on our hearts? Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Go through the Holy Spirit. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. Well, that's referring to the glorification of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks of this too in John 16, 14. He says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Understand the Holy Spirit, the one thing he, he does, the one thing he lives for is to glorify Christ, to draw us closer to Christ, to bring us to Christ. And speaking on this, Jesus, when he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Why would he do that? Why would he convict the world about these things? Because he is trying to draw them to repentance, to draw them to the water, draw them to Christ. That must include conviction of sin and a change of action, and a change of heart. Or it's not a full acceptance of the invitation of compassion. We must also seek to submit to the invitation. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Seek the Lord. This is a very common concept throughout the Old Testament. We see it in passages like Psalm 34.10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. We come to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29.13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The promise is not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer as well. Of course, we know Jeremiah 29 is about the exile from Babylon. The return from the exile. God's plans for Israel. And yet here we see God's heart is on display, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. The idea that they will seek him and continue to seek him, continue to grow in him, continue to repent, continue to shake off the the sin that slows us down. That's how it is for the believing Christian as well. Hebrews 11.6, we love to quote the first portion of this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, but we read the rest. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, it is a message of repentance. When we draw close to God, sin cannot exist in the presence of holiness. So we must cast it off. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Well, what brings God near? I want to know that. I want to experience that. Psalms tells us, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now keep that in mind when you read the words of Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, by the way, some of you know this, that is the psalm that David wrote when he was caught in his sin with Bathsheba and was repenting. He was heeding, hearing, and seeking, and submitting to the invitation. We can hear the invitation, we can heed it, but we need to seek and submit to his call. Submitting to the will of God means understanding that it is his will that wins, not mine. He wins, not me. That's submission. Truly seeking God means acting in faith accompanied by repentance, forsaking ungodly ways, turning from our sin. In the Old Testament, this is one of the truest, purest examples of how somebody could become an Israelite, begin to be grafted in to the people of Israel. We see it in Ruth when she tells Naomi, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she forsakes her Moabite ways and adapts the Israelite ways. That's how one would become grafted into God's people. In the New Testament, the principle somewhat remains. A sinner believes in God, recognizes their sin, desires forgiveness, desires deliverance, and at the same time, they understand their own inability to be righteous on their own. We cast ourselves upon God's mercy and we let the Holy Spirit work within. That's when the sinner receives a complete pardon. Their sin is covered by the atonement the Messiah provides at the cross. 
And it ties into the next verse too, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return, there it is again, shuv, return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. With that forsaking, with that turning away, turning away from unrighteousness that's within us, there's that compassion of God. There's that love of God. You know, so many times as a kid, I sang that song like so many did back in the 80s. Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm not going to sing the whole song. You're, you're welcome. For the Bible told, tells me so. But as I got older, and my sisters began to sing that song, I began to ask the question, but why does God love me? I didn't believe a lot of people loved Jeff Williams. I knew my grandma did. My grandma that passed away this past January, she loved just being around her grandkids. She'd just sit there and giggle. She was just so happy. Being, with, being around us made her so complete. Wasn't a lot of love in our home growing up. We didn't even say I love you very often until our home was broken. And ultimately, through all of that, I realized that Jesus may love me, the Bible may tell me so, but I did not love me. So why on earth should God love me? Well, the Bible tells me so, but does the Bible tell us why? And I had to find out. What does the Bible say about all that? Well, this is why it's called good news. God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. God doesn't love me because I'm so special. God doesn't, God's love doesn't depend on me at all, but it depends on him because he is love. He is so good. He is so compassionate. And he is so loving. That's why the Apostle John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's, the, it's part of his very being. The Bible Project's Timothy Mackey says, God is a pushover for love. That love is his workhorse attribute. The one thing he does more than anything. And when he created mankind, we were created in the image of God to reflect that love back towards him. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's like the Westminster Confession says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We enjoy him because we love him. We love him because we love because he first loved us. He loves us because we were meant to belong to him. But sin came along in the Garden of Eden and it corrupted. So we needed a Savior. The Lord in His compassion took on a body of flesh and died for our sins. He pardoned us when the Son paid the price in our place. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am the That's the gospel. That's the pardon. That's the good news. And the Old Testament here in Isaiah 55, it's pointing us forwards that good news, that hope. So let's pick it up and run with it. The next verse says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. And we said, Amen. That's awesome. That's great news because I know my ways are not that great. I know my thoughts are not always that great. This is God making clear that while he loves us, while he's compassionate for us, while he cares for us, he is not like us. We were made in his image, yes, but so is a crayon stick person that says, Daddy, on a sheet of paper, it's not me. My daughter just drew an image. An image. Not an exact replica. It's not a clone. Not me. And we should be glad this is true. We, this should bring us to our knees in worship. Humanity has for so long, ever since the Garden of Eden, when the snake whispered, but you will be like God. That lie has contaminated humanity for so long. We've wanted to be like him. Two ways the enemy deceives humanity, by the way. You may want to write this down. He makes us question God's word. Did God really say? If you read Genesis, you'll note, Eve knew the word of God. She knew what God had said, but she begins to question it. The old adage, 
God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's flawed, especially when it comes to Eve. When you look at Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he does not battle with the devil that way. He says, it is written, that settles it. Snake causes her to call into question what God has said, and in that question, the fruit begins to look so tasty. The second way is tempting humanity into thinking we are like him, or we can become like him in all his power. And we strive to be Christ-like, yes, but we will never become Christ himself. While we are co-heirs with Christ, he will never, uh, we will never have his place in worship. Christ addresses this, actually, in John 10 with the Pharisees of his day. They had set themselves up in judgment over those they deemed less than, and in their hearts believed themselves to be like gods. In fact, this is why they were mad at Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says he is the Son of God, making himself like God. They get really upset about that. So he points out that they've set themselves up as judges, like little gods, He's quoting Psalm 82. And really what they're upset about with Jesus is when he says it about himself, he can back it up. They can't. And he's exposed their quote-unquote godliness to be a fraud. In Psalm 82.6, people sometimes quote this. They, they like to use this to point out that what they believe. It says, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. But the fact is they forget that next verse that says, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Actually, when you read Psalm 82, God is mocking those who he says this to. For some, this is an offense to their pride. They think they deserve to be more, or that that God is made in their likeness, not the other way around. But like I said, we should really be glad God is so much greater. We should rejoice about it, because this verse makes it very clear. His ways, his thoughts of grace, his thoughts of compassion, His thoughts of love are better than higher and more wonderful than we could ever fathom. His ability to pardon is better than mine, greater than mine and yours. His ability to forgive, his ability to love, so much deeper. You know, the most quoted verse in all the Old Testament is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, As the Lord passes by Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What that's telling us is that God is love, but God is also just. And he can be neither of those things if he is not both of those things. And in his love, which is so greater than ours, in his mercy and grace, he is able to forgive iniquities we cannot forgive. Forgive transgressions we cannot forget. And he can cast sins as far as the east is from the west, while we so often want to hang on to them. If we are in him, if we are in his son, we are cleansed by his love. We're justified, Paul says, in first and first Corinthians six, Paul mentions some of the worst sins in all of humanity. He lists them out. The worst things people do to one another. And this is what he says. So this is how he concludes it. And such were some of you. Were is the key word. There was repentance. There was change. And this is how he says, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we are in Christ, we are justified. We are sanctified. Only the deep love of God, only His forgiveness can do that. I had a friend of mine one time, used to, in high school, I worked at McDonald's, and we would go out, and we were from a small town, and gas wasn't $5 a gallon, and you could just cruise. How many of you have ever been cruising? Yeah? Okay, three, four of you. We would just go out and we'd cruise and we would have the deepest conversations a 17-year-old could have. And I was freshly on fire for the Lord. I just rededicated my life and my friend Matta was driving and I just began to share the gospel with her. I just told her, I said, you know, I'm not a good person, Matta. I don't have it all figured out. I just know God forgave me and he can forgive you. 
And we stopped at a stoplight, and in the glare of the stoplight, I saw tears just streaming down her cheeks. I said, did I upset you? Are, are you okay? She says, Jeff, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've manipulated people to do. And I remember looking at her and saying, you're absolutely right, I don't. But that's the goodness of God. He does, and he still loves you. He still forgives you. You just will accept it. God's grace, God's ways exceed our imagination. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how, how inscrutable his ways. His plans, his thoughts, his very being is so high above us, but so is his love, his mercy, and his grace. And he says it again. He repeats this in verse 9. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts, your thoughts. How much higher is God's reasoning? Well, how much higher is the sky than the earth? You ever think about that? How high do you have to go before you can finally say, hey, I'm in the sky? And notice he says heavens, plural. Not just the sky. In other words, the, the intended meaning is good luck measuring it. It's not something you can just pull out a tape measure and, and, and get the number. And even if you could, by the way, science tells us that the universe is constantly expanding. It just tells us so is God's love, God's grace. This actually comes up in the book of Job. Job has this one friend who I would argue is actually his one really good friend. Out of the, the four men, that he has three of, we call them Job's comforters. They show up and, and as soon as they start talking, things just get worse, right? If you've read the book of Job, you know he's suffering. He doesn't know why he's suffering. And the entire time, these three men pick at him and pick at him and pick at him. And they try to say, you've got this sin or you've done that thing. And Job justifies himself and his friend Elihu, the younger man out of all of them, he gets upset. He gets upset because Job justifies himself and not God. That's what Job 32.2 says. And though the, while the other three men go silent, Elihu, whose name means he is my God, he begins to talk to Job. And he's the only friend of Job's the Lord does not rebuke at the end of the, at the, end of the book. And this is what he says. He says, look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. In other words, so are God's purposes. For all of Job's righteousness, Elihu's frustration was that God is still God. He's still good. And for whatever purpose, and Elihu doesn't claim to know, but for whatever purpose Job is suffering, Elihu wants him to understand at the end of the day, God is still faithful. So if you have nothing to repent of, Fine, Job, but know that God is still faithful. And that's how it is with our suffering and our hurt. God is still merciful, still gracious, still loving, and beyond anything we can fathom. His invitation of compassion is not just for those who have everything figured out, though it is for them as well. Not for those who have it all. For the worst of us. Well, I used to say this whenever... I became the pastor here, I would say, you know, Lisbon was really scraping the bottom of the barrel to get me. And some of you might say amen to that. Um, but I'll tell you what, God loves to take what's the bottom of the barrel and make it his and change it. And I'm not saying that about myself, okay? I'm saying that about all of us. If you've ever felt like you were at the bottom of the barrel, you were what they scraped and came up with, God says, hey, that's mine. Watch what I can do, because at the bottom of the barrel, he finds apostles like Paul. He finds men like Jonah. He finds Peter and James and John and Andrew fishing, because he knows that he can use them and change them. And in their repentance, he can make something new, something great. He can do something pure and holy through their lives. See, that's the invitation of compassion to the repentant heart. And through it all, God is faithful to forgive in that invitation. Verse 10 says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, and we read this and we go, Amen. We're surrounded by farm country. We get this. Good analogy. We got it, right? 
We like our farmers, our ranchers. We appreciate them. We know that without rain, without snow, there's no harvest. In the Old Testament, that's true too. But they also know in this era of Israel's history, they know that at one point they didn't rely on God for those things. They did not call out to Yahweh. They called out to other gods like Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, Chemosh. The list goes on. They wanted them to bring the rain. But see, they've learned. They've repented. They've been in exile. They know that Yahweh is the God who truly sends the rain. In fact, to not have rain, to have a drought, God made that a judgment. We see this in Elijah's time under the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Elijah tells the king, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And I believe it's for three and a half years, there's no rain. And there's no rain and the people are starving and they're getting hungry. And all the while, God is saying, I have a compassionate invitation. You just have to come back to me. And the people cry out to Baal. They cry out to the Ashtoreth, the other gods. And God says, come to me. Come to the water and watch what I'll do. By the way, Baal was a very nasty deity. The things they did to honor him, self-mutilation, child sacrifice, but it never brought the rain. Because Baal's not the real thing. And eventually Elijah will pray and he'll tell Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing rain. And the rain comes. God begins, verse 10 in Isaiah 55 with the word for. That lets us know that God is explaining something to the people. That command to come, to listen, to seek, to forsake, to turn, all those things, they can only make people right with God if they repent when they hear the word of truth. When they understand it. Isaiah 55.11 says, So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Matthew Henry's commentary says, The power of, the power of his word in the kingdoms of providence and grace is as certain as in, the, in that of nature. Sacred truth produces a spiritual change in the mind of men, which neither rain nor snow can make on the earth. It shall not return to the Lord without producing important effects. The rain accomplishes its purpose. It brings moisture. It waters the earth. It helps vegetation grow. In the same way, God takes our hearts and the word hits our hearts and it has to take root. And it, Jesus talks about this in Mark 4 in the parable of the sower. He says those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word of the Lord and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, a hundredfold. The word does not come back empty or void, but it accomplishes what he purposes. Another thing to remember is that in the Near East, very quickly the earth could become dry and hard in the, in the heat, but just a little bit of water and it would become able to produce vegetation. Very fertile ground. When God's word is spoken in the same way, it brings forth in a person a new spiritual life. It produces the fruit of the Spirit, and it accomplishes His purpose. We read on in verse 12, You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. We shall go out in joy. We'll be led in peace. Why? Because we are free from the yoke of slavery to sin. Romans 6 tells us this, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We're like exiled Israel. They return to the promised land. And we can rejoice too in our deliverance, the hand of God upon our lives. We're justified, we're being sanctified, and we are looking all the while toward eternity in the presence of our Savior. Because of him, because our sins are forgiven, we are free at last. Verse 13, this, and I'll begin to wrap us up. It says, instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. In the kingdom of Israel, post-exile, the land had been free from their abuse. It had been free from their sin for almost 70 years. And when they returned, the dirt is ready to be tilled. They are ready for a harvest. The earth is ready to bring fruit. 
In the same way, we, as we look forward, 1 Peter 1.1 refers to the church as elect exiles, those who are living in a place that's not their home, but we're living for our eternal home. And he goes on in verses 8 and 9, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You see, in that kingdom to come, it will reverse the curse of sin. The thing we read about in Genesis 3, an ongoing testimony to God's redemption of his people. Paul concludes in Romans 8, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the promise of the invitation. That we are in him. That we're free from the bondage of sin. That we're free for all eternity to be in the presence of Christ. To worship him. To worship the one who shed his blood for our freedom. You've heard me say this. Some of you have heard me say this before. The joy of the Christian isn't that one day I die and get to go be with Jesus in heaven. The joy of the Christian is that when I believe and have accepted him into my heart, he has come down and heaven has nestled within my very soul. And now I look forward to the day where I get to continue worshiping in his presence for all eternity. Have you received that invitation this morning? Are you repentant this morning, ready to turn and go his way? I'm going to move to close, and if you're watching online or you're here in person, I challenge you to seek and submit to his invitation this morning. He is faithful to forgive. doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 80 or 90 years. We all have to take that moment and say, Lord, I remember the invitation, and I thank you for your compassion. If you've never accepted the call and wish to submit to it today, today's a great day to begin a new chapter in your life. Today is a great day for a fresh start. Today is a great day for a powerful change. If you're here, maybe you're, you're a Christian, but you've wandered, or you're just in the driest, darkest time of your life. You're in a desperate moment of faith, and you just need a refreshing. You just want someone to pray with you and pray for you. Today is a good day to let revival begin in your heart. So ask the worship team to come back and play. We're going to close in a song of worship. But if that's you, if this applies to you, if this is hitting your heart, pray where you are. Come forward to be prayed with by our, our prayer team. Ask someone to pray with you where you are. That's okay too. If you're watching online, reach out. Shoot us an email. Go to our website. Go through Facebook. Whatever. We're happy to pray with you, but pray where you are. And you might be sitting there. You might be saying, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for this. That's okay. Some of the greatest, most powerful prayers are just simply a few words. Lord, save me. Lord, you know. And then just let God do what he does best. Love us. Love you. Cherish you. Show his compassion. Just as